the Octagon. It's become the home of the most dramatic martial arts clashes ever. The home of the most awesome displays of power, technique, and art. This is the ultimate fighting championship where over the last 24 months, reputations were built and destroyed. Fighting systems judged and found wanting. Now, after seven grueling tournaments, eight warriors have passed muster. The greatest fighters on the planet, ultimate champions. Jenna, Severn, Taktara, and Buas. Ultimate challengers, Abbott, Smith, Hackney, and Benito. All here tonight, ready to do battle in the ultimate, ultimate. Are you ready? Let's open up the gate. Hello and welcome to the MMA 20 Years Ago podcast. We're going in the time machine and jumping back to December of 1995 and reviewing the UFC's event, The Ultimate Ultimate. Joining me tonight, I've got Bob Amber. Hey, Tom. Evening to you, Bob. And Chris White. Hi, Tom. Hi, Chris. Right, so, uh, boys, tonight we're, um, we're, we're gonna obviously go on to review the, uh, the event itself, um, but we are gonna jump out of the 20 mode, sorry, 20 years ago mode, uh, and have a bit of a chat about the current, uh, UFC, um, important happenings since we did the last podcast, uh, looking forward as well, and uh, some, some things that are on the horizon. Uh, that's not gonna take us too long, I don't think, but it is, it'll be good to, 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 to start with that, and then we'll lead into some news that bridge the gaps between, uh, the last UFC 7 show, and uh, also to this one, which is actually technically UFC 7.5. Uh, why they called it that is beyond me. But um, that, that, that's, well, that's, importantly, that's they didn't call it 7.5. But this is Ultimate Ultimate, and the next show is UFC 8. So it's become yeah. known as UFC 7.5. Yeah, um, well, within the show, the commentators did call it 7.5 as well. So oh, did they? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah they did. But yeah, like, yeah, they're gonna get to UFC 200 like WWE got to WrestleMania 25. They're gonna call it like the 200th show, and it's not gonna be the 200th show. But yeah, anyway, carry on, Tom. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so yeah, this is this is volume four of uh, the month's shows, by the way. There's there's six volumes this month, uh, and this is your MMA uh, section of it. So se- separate to the uh, the wrestling side of it, and that, that but that's that's what we're here to do. So um first first talking point boys i think let's let's touch on the ronda rousey holly home fight from ufc 193 um it was for the bantamweight uh female title and uh to to put it bluntly holly home shot the world um i never saw the result coming as it happened um i thought the fight was very one-sided and i don't think that anyone could have predicted that it would have been so clear-cut that it was um, I thought that Rousey's stand-up game obviously lacked depth. She wasn't ready for the boxing side that Holly Holm brought. I think she had something like 32 um, boxing fights uh, behind her that, she, that she'd won, uh, primarily by knockout. So I don't think that Rousey or her camp were at all prepared for what Holly Holm was bringing. But um, Chris, I know you watched the fight as well. What, what, did, what did you make of it? Well, to say I called it would be an exaggeration, but I did to an extent as... At the back end of October, it was my birthday, and one of the gifts I received was Holly, uh, sorry, Ronda Rousey's autobiography. Haven't got around to reading it yet, and as the fight approached, I said, sod's law, she'll lose, and then the whole book will be somewhat out of context. Didn't actually think she would lose, and then was pretty uh, disappointed when she did, just from a selfish point of view. Well, but I think we were all disappointed entire... that we didn't lump in on Holly Holm uh, before the fight. Uh, no. She was about 15 to 1 at one point. <laughs> 
absolutely madness for and it wasn't that much of a mismatch going in. I know it felt like it because of how much uh, Rousey's been built up, but in terms of, as Tom touched on, uh, Holmes' sort of resume uh, in the world of boxing and even in MMA up until this fight, like she was a class above a few of uh, Ronda's more recent opponents, and those those odds were massive. But I didn't I didn't call it in any way and didn't see it being anywhere near as one side as it was. Uh, Conor McGregor's been in the press this week talking about the fight in the build-up to his fight with uh, Aldo next week at UFC 194. And he's been talking about how he felt like personal issues must have been a decisive factor within Ronda's camp, basically. She's been... She's had a sort of tough time in recent months, it seems, with the press. It's a very uh, mixed relationship, and it's not been quite as positive as it was in the earlier part of her sort of mega star run if you'd like but I couldn't I was yeah. absolutely shocked by the outcome of the result uh outcome of the fight sorry and I mean I'm looking forward to the rematch if, if we do get it because that will be absolutely huge and it'd be interesting to see if Ronda is able to prepare for home in the way that home and her camp prepared for Ronda this time around because they had the perfect game plan going in and executed it wonderfully yeah, Dana White has said that Rousey can have the rematch as soon as she likes it, basically. So, you know, and he said he'd probably lose his promoter's license if he didn't book that fight, because people are saying, should he book <laughs> it? Um, but I, of course he should. It's money. It's money on, on paper, basically. Um, what, and I think what else would he book? Like, you know, is, is there, is there, well, I suppose there is money in Holly Hall against someone else, but like, who, who, what other match are you going to book in this situation? I, I think it mainly comes down to that Wanda's not going to be fighting for a while, and home would likely get in the octagon before Ronda's going to be around again. She's got oh, like, movie yeah, commitments right. and things like that. So if they held home off for that rematch, then you're going to have a long period without her defending her title. I think that's what it comes down to, rather than. But I think they are going to wait it out for the rematch to be home's first defence, which makes the most sense. But is going to be slightly further off than we. Well, like. it'd be a bit problematic if they held off on Ronda and, and Holly Holm and then, say, Misha Tate came in and somehow beat Holly Holm. Um, then then everything would be kind of thrown out. So I think they probably yeah. are best waiting just for the rematch, you know, because obviously this isn't wrestling and we can't book it. Um, and so they, they, they don't want, much in the same way they didn't want Ronda Rousey to lose, they, they certainly don't want Holly Holm to lose it before they can get to that rematch. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And, and there, there would be a, a good story to be told if in the rematch, which is Tolly Holmes' next fight, Rousey somehow gets the title back. Uh, that would be, that would be huge. Um, I, I don't, personally, I don't see it. Um, I, I don't think, I think Holly Holmes is very underrated. Um, and I think she's going to do very well as, as, as the champ. But, um, if she comes up against someone with more experience and more, uh, more stand-up game in their, in their back catalogue, uh, I don't know. It'd be interesting to see. But the rematch is definitely going to happen. It's just a case of when, I would say. Uh, Tom, if you don't if you don't see Ronda winning, then uh, you need to lump on home this time round as well because Ronda is still the favourite in the early uh, early pricing for the for the rematch. So really, that's something oh, to well, think about. Yeah, all that stuff that you were saying about her camp, though. I mean, like her her mum uh, left the camp, didn't she? And her mum's the yeah. you know tra- training her since she was fourteen, and then she she disagreed with the head trainer, and there's there's all that that's still going on. I don't know, I don't think she's changed camps yet. Uh, I haven't read anything no. to say that she has, so I don't know. I, I I wonder if it's all become a bit much for her. But she's su- like she's such a big star now. It, it's kind of 
she's almost past that that wall of being in the UFC, and I get, I, I wonder, you know, we, if we see our fight again and she's not successful, I don't know how long she'll stick around. Um, it reminds you know, she, me, sort of. Sorry, Tom, go ahead. No, I was going to say, like, she's got, you know, she's got the determination and she's got the spirit, but you know, financially. There'll only be so much money in her if she comes back and loses, and then potentially loses again. Not that I'm saying she will. Uh, she's got to think about that as, as you know, her own name as a selling point. And plus, who, who does she? If she loses the rematch to home, what what next? Like, well, exactly. I mean, all right. I suppose you could do a third one, but given that if Holly had won two on the spin, then and particularly how decisive I get the impression the first victory was. There's no, there's no third match there for a while, and it's like, yeah. what, do you just move her back to starting plowing through other people? I mean, is that, you know, I, I think it's less of a case of whether she'll give up, and more of a case of if she can't beat Holm the second time. That might be it, just because there's no point in carrying on. Yeah, there was talk about her fighting Cyborg, um, who is in the wrong weight class, and and it doesn't look like it's going to happen. And to be honest, that whole fight was based upon the fact that Rousey was champion and she hadn't lost. And Cyborg was the only person that could beat her, potentially. Now that sort of, that streak has been broken. Uh, like you say, say Bob, you couldn't have her as, as not being the champion and going back and just pounding everybody and win and, and beating everybody. Yes, she would eventually get another title shot. So she might do that, but there's a lot more money to be had elsewhere, I think, for, for, for Rousey. Um, okay. So that, that's, we've touched on that voice. Now, next, uh, just, uh, quickly, Chris, you, you went to the UFC Dublin event in, uh, on October 24th. Um, I'd just like to get your sort of quick thoughts on uh, how the event was. I, I, I don't think it was your first UFC event you've been to, but I'd certainly, you know, as it was quite recent, like to get your thoughts on how you thought it went and uh, the feel of the crowd and the atmosphere and how the fight card uh, played out. Well, he, well, it was it was a wonderful experience. Um, heading into the show, it was slightly disappointing as both the uh, main event and the co-main event uh, were cancelled within the two weeks leading into it. Through, due to injury and whatnot. So I think it ended up being the first UFC card without a ranked fighter for like six years or something like that. Like it was mm. it, like the statistic was crazy, but it didn't take away from the atmosphere and it didn't take away from the volume of the crowd by any means. It was, it was, it was a stunning experience. It was a stunning live event experience. And even though Paddy Houlihan and Louis Smolker, neither of them were stars, they certainly felt like it as they walked out for the main event in terms of the atmosphere they created in that arena. And I think that's a credit to the, the Dublin crowd, basically. But it was a, it was a wonderful event, and uh, it was a mixed bag for the Irish. They had a few wins and a few losses in there, but it was a great experience, and it's got me even more excited to be heading to UFC London in February. Yeah, you and me both. I mean, the, the the atmosphere seemed electric when I was watching it on TV, and uh, Conor McGregor was in the house, right? Yeah, he yeah. popped out. He wasn't in the... There was an area where all the fighters were sitting, and he was a notable omission. And then uh, when the first Irish fighter came to the octagon, he came out with them and stood at the side of the cage, being very, very vocal throughout the fight. And uh, he did that for every time there was an Irish fighter. So that was... Uh, that was quite a sight and obviously he got a big pop from the crowd as you'd expect as you'd expect he's the local hero so okay cool so yeah uh bob um chris and i got our tickets for usc london next year february 27th so we'll have full match report on that uh when it rolls around and i don't know by the time the next we do the next podcast it'll well the next one is february so i guess if we just take that as late as possible 
um, or maybe the beginning of March, um, then yeah, we, we could have a recap of that show right as it happened before it goes out. Um, I'm not going to be at that event, um, having been to, I was at the UFC London show a couple of years ago and it was a fun night, but at 125 quid for a lower bowl ticket, I, I, I was kind of happy to leave this one alone. Uh, you can get cheaper, but it's like, even then, 50 quid, may, maybe not. Um, but yeah, if, if we could, there's a UFC show to tape, uh, in February 96, so we'll probably try and jam this, jam this bit in maybe at the beginning of March so we can have a proper discussion about that as well. Yeah, okay, great. Sounds good to me. Okay, so, uh, chaps, uh, let, let's spot Bob. Let's throw it over to you, uh, just to cover the news and bridge the gap between, uh, UFC 7 and the, uh, event that's not called 7.5, but we're gonna call it 7.5 anyway. Uh, and then after that, we'll, uh, crack on with the, uh, results of Ultimate Ultimate 1995. So, over to you, Bob. Yeah, quite a bit to cover. Um, you know, we'll, 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 there's about four or five things to discuss, so, so this might take a little while. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna make a note in the, uh, in the podcast description of where we get to the point where we start discussing the show, because we could be here a little while with this. Um, the first thing of note, we alluded to it, um, on, on the first UFC show we did, uh, UFC 7, was that that was the last show without judges. This one had judges introduced there were three of them and we'll discuss their implementation uh, as we get to it uh, they also refine the lengths of the rounds the quarterfinals had a 15 minute time limit semi-finals had an 18 minute time limit and the final had a 27 minute time limit with an optional overtime extra uh, UFC 8 uh, in February 96 as we spoke about a minute ago uh, is going to be headlined by Ken Shamrock uh, against Chemo uh, and the idea at the time for the tournament uh, called sorry David versus Goliath style uh uh, tournament with, you know, we, we talk about, you know, mismatches in weights. They set one up for, for February with four guys who weigh over 270 pounds and four guys who weigh 200 pounds. Uh, and the other bit of news as well, uh, is that the competitors at Ultimate Ultimate were given the option of wearing light gloves to protect their knuckles. Um, uh, well, I, I suspect there's, there's two things to discuss there. Um, Chris, very, very briefly, we, we discussed the judges thing last time. Um, but a little bit of a relief that we're getting them this time, particularly as, uh, um, this this tournament needed it. Yeah, it, it definitely was the right call to bring judges in. Uh, in. You would hate to see what would have happened on the night of the Ultimate Ultimate, considering uh, both semis and the final went to the judges. So we just had alternates take their place or whatever, like something like that. And it would have been... Uh, well, it would have been a flop of a tournament considering how they build this one as sort of the first proper tournament with eight proven octagon UFC fighters uh, getting getting to grips with each other. So it was a necessary addition. And uh, as Ken, Ken Shamrock said uh, during the Ultimate, Ultimate it's um, definitely improved the sport moving forward. And he was very pro-judges. And you can see why, because he's been involved in two of the super fights that have gone to draws. And, and, and we'll it, Go on, mate. He, he he would have won one of the uh, he he would have definitely won the super fight we reviewed at USC seven had there been judges and it's on his resume as a as a draw so he also yeah. said it would create some controversy but we'll, we'll hear that interview later on Tom saying thoughts on the judges yeah I think it's a welcome addition I don't think I'd be amazed actually if you found anybody that said that they thought that bringing judges uh, in was a bad idea and actually had a valid argument to state that. I, I, I could not stress enough if I was in the UFC creative department, if there's such a thing, um, that the judges make the, the whole thing more of a sport because there's no sport, as Ken Shamrock said, in 
one person constantly being on the, on the front foot trying to fight, the other person playing defensive, going for the time limit, looking for the draw. It ends up as a draw, and, and, it, and it looks as like a, uh, a potential blemish on both their records. Um, so having the judges, uh, you know, they, they said they base it on aggression, um, strike attempts, uh, groundwork, and also you, you do you do base it on defensive uh, uh, skill as well. But it's more about who's bringing the fight and who's trying to run away from it. So uh, as a fan of Robot Wars, I was a little bit disappointed that they weren't judging it on style, style control, damage, and aggression. Um, but you know, the, 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 <laughs> the, there's my Robot Wars reference for the show. Um, the other the, the other thing, Tom, I suppose to mention quickly. Not that I think many of the fighters took uh, this option, but obviously when you fast forward through to well, we don't have to go more modern USC. You don't have to go forward a few more years. Um, they fighters are given the option of wearing light gloves and obviously this has become a thing but uh, another point and again something that, that, that's come up in certainly the notes I don't know whether we can get to it or not but the notes for this this other part of the news in terms of the idea that you know boxing people have gloves to protect their hands uh, and in USC with, without being able to protect your knuckles you're going to end up with a lot of hand injuries where particularly where in a tournament structure like this, where you're trying to have people re- uh, wrestle, fight uh, multiple times during an evening, not being able to wear gloves is a significant disadvantage because of the increased chance of hand injuries. Um, so, Tom, quite another fairly significant moment, I suppose, even though it's not something that features a ton during this show, is that the rule change that people can start wearing gloves if they show wish. Yeah, I think it's um, something that the fighters will look on and go, ah, pish, 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 sure, I don't need gloves. But on the other side of the coin, um, I think it's a selling point. I think it's a marketing point. There's a lot of money to be made of having these fighters come out in those uh, sort of half-glove uh, pads. And um, I think, actually, when you watch fights, you know, we won't go into too much detail, but when you watch some of the fights like Dan Seven, the, the, the commentators said, you know, if he keeps if he keeps striking with his fists like that, he's going to break his knuckles. And if you pad the, wrist, uh, pad the fists up, what you're actually doing is increasing the amount of striking that can be given and also the impact of it isn't quite so great, so it makes it more of a fight. Um, so it actually, you know, reduces the amount of uh, elbows, kicks, or in Dan Seven's case, slapping, which I thought was completely ridiculous, but we'll get on to that later. Um, so I, I think it's, it, like I say, it's an important point, and I think it's a real step in the right direction in terms of the uh, overall look of UFC, because, the, you know, the way, the way they do it now is they've got the fight kit, and they all wear the same gear, and, and it, they look like UFC fighters, whereas back in back in the, in the 95 days, and just before it, and just, you know, soon after it, they look like random fighters pitted against each other in a cage, um, whereas I think the more uniform approach leads, people know what they're getting, uh, and they know what the fight is going to be like, and they know that the different styles make it, you know, interesting to watch, but actually, the, the, the start-to-finish match, that you, you can see that they're similar Whereas these fights are so random the way the way they go, and I think adding adding the gloves in is just a, little, a minor part of that. Um, but I, I think as as time goes by, you know, we will well, we know we will see more of the fighters take it up, and UFC will start really pushing it home. Yeah, and if you go back and watch UFC one, you get to watch someone fight in one boxing glove. Uh, that that's a that's an interesting visual. Hey, Chris, I, I guess there's I, I touched on any of the points Tom made, but also I think there's there's something less about kind of the merchandising and more just about. The look, it, it, it's kind of, it, it, wearing the glass crates are more MMA, a unique look to MMA and, and, and UFC. And also they, they kind of look a bit tougher as well. I don't know whether that's, that's just my own visual, but I think in terms of Bond Day UFC fighters, you, you, you post all those photos and you're wearing gloves. It, 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 it's a strong visual. Chris. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it makes sense from a sort of, Make, it makes UFC and MMA in general look like more of a legitimate sport outside of, as Tom described it, 
sort of random guy has been pitted together in a cage. That aspect is definitely enhanced massively through the wearing of gloves alone and add to the benefits of allowing for more strikes to be thrown and with more power behind them and less slapping, as Tom said. That's definitely going to improve not only the marketability of it as a legitimate sport, but the in-octagon action as well. So we'll move away from the kind of news between the shows just to um, come and have a little bit of a chat about what happened in, in, in the few weeks leading up to the show. Now, UFC is, is no stranger, certainly after this, and not before either, to controversy. You know, there are, you know, some people don't like it. And, you know, UFC has had for a long time issues with, you know, getting regulated in certain states and whatnot. And as it turned out in December 95, they had a lot of issues. Um on the 2nd of December, uh, Denver Mayor Wellington Webb found a loophole in his contract with the arena that was going to host the show, which said that all events coming out emanating from that venue must be pre-approved. Now, they never actually bothered with this. It was just a bit of, you know, legal le- legislature that, you know, that they just left alone. But as, as he turned out, he didn't want it there. Um, they basically said, you can't hold it here anymore. So... Uh, they had about three weeks, two, three weeks to find a new venue, which they did, a lot smaller. Um, and, and the mayor did try and drive them out of Denver completely, um, but there wasn't so much vociferous report, uh, support for, for his views from, from other people um, kind of who, who were in power in Denver. Um, at least drive them out of city-owned venues. They had to find a kind of a private venue to do it. Um, and they also had to move this show later into the evening um, because on about a month's notice, uh, Mike Tyson's fight uh, was scheduled for earlier that evening. So we ended up with the show starting at 10 p.m. Eastern time. And had it run the distance, it could have been going on to 1 a.m. Eastern uh, on the Sunday morning. Uh, Chris, a- anything to kind of chop in? We're going to do some stuff on media and, and, and a few other things in a minute. But anything to, 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 to throw in on, on this so far? Well, I, I think it's just it's the beginning of a whole host of problems, as you said, the UFC is going to have in getting licensed and approved and general media pressure. But it, it nearly threw the whole show like completely off the rails with only a few weeks' notice. And like they did really well to uh, find another venue within like within Denver, basically. And it's a, it's a shame for them that they lost the gate. But generally speaking. You'd think they'd have gained a lot more popularity, sort of, because they seem quite underground, even though they do very well in terms of the number of buys they get and whatnot, considering they don't have TV. But they are quite an underground sort of organisation at this time. So this sort of mainstream attention from, like, the mayor is going to massively improve people's knowledge of the company existing. And probably draw a lot more eyes to the pay-per-view. Yeah, that was one of the big takeaways um, from the analysis heading into the show was that while they, while they had to draw, they, that they were going, I think, for an 8,000 seat venue and end up in a 2,500 seat venue. Uh, there was the impression that all of the controversy, and we're going to come on to the other stuff in a minute, all the controversy contributed towards USC getting a lot of publicity out of it. Uh, Tom, Tom, any thoughts? It's just the old phrase of no publicity is bad publicity for me. I, I think um, you know the type of people that are going to want to watch this this type of product. They may not immediately realise it's the sort of thing they like, but after they watch it, they might sort of uh, uh, desensitise themselves to it. And I think something like this might actually think, make, make them think, hang on a bit, you know, if, if the man is telling me that I shouldn't be watching this, uh, I'm going to make every effort I can to watch it. Uh, so it can it can come back to bite, bite on the backside uh, in that way. But I think, you know, it's a social statement. I don't think the world 
as a whole um, in 1995 is ready for bare knuckle fighting on their televisions. Um, and it's something that the UFC is going to have to challenge and, and come up against. Um, you know, not for not for uh, it's not going to go away anytime soon. And uh, you know, as we know, eventually it, it becomes much more mainstream. And you know, it's it's on regular TV. But um, this, they're still you know, struggling in certain areas, aren't they? It, it, yeah, it, it's still it's sure. still banned in New York. They still yeah. they can't they can't have events in New York, for example's sake. Um, and that's something they're really trying to overturn, especially trying to get it for UFC 200. They want they want to do that from New York. Um, but it's it's still frowned upon. You know, like, it, it's something. It's brutal. It's it's very hard hitting. There's a lot of blood. Um, it's not like pro wrestling where they can say it's entertainment. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, a lot of people find it a bit, a bit much. Um, there, there was an article on the BBC, I think, within the last year, probably, definitely within the last 12 months. And its title was just MMA is not a sport. And to this day, BBC other offer no MMA, BBC sport offer no MMA coverage whatsoever. So I think that's like, it's clearly something they're still struggling with, like in the present day. So, considering the lack of rules and rounds and regulations and things like that back in 1995, it's no surprise at all that they struggled so much in the early stages. Yeah, but today, today it's ridiculous though, because like you look at boxing, and I, I read an article that was comparing the long-term damages on fighters of being boxers or being MMA fighters. And actually, MMA is looked on as being the safer sport because if you if you if you are in boxing. If you if you are down for a ten count, then the match is over. But if you manage to pull yourself up, the fight continues. If the referee in MMA thinks that it's done and you can't defend yourself, they'll call it straight away. There is no fight that goes on longer than it should because the referee will step jump in at the very first second they think that the defense isn't there. Um, so I, I think nowadays it's probably because you say Chris because of this long term thing that, that, that's you know when it started with with the bare fists and. Uh, um, the, the rowdy sort of atmosphere in the crowd, like, you know, like, this is almost like a dirty ECW dungeon crowd. Uh, I don't think that helps its cause, but I think, you know, even today, like, like, the fact that it still goes on is beyond me, really. Isn't there also the thought in boxing that because the gloves do so much work to protect, um, the offensive man's, uh, knuckles and fists and hands, that you can inflict a lot more damage just because you can punch a lot more? without sustaining damage to yourself. Isn't that part of it as well? Yeah, it is, but that's the visual element of it. In terms of, you, if you actually look at the stats, in terms of the amount of boxers that end up paralysed, uh, it's, it's a greater number than the ratio of fighters that do in MMA. It's a fact. There's been studies on it. So people are just happier watching it, people fight with gloves on, because they think, oh, it doesn't hurt as much as it would. I think people look at those boxing gloves and they think it's almost like having a pillow strapped to your fist. If you punch someone in the head, it's not going to hurt anywhere near as hard as it would if you were just wearing, a, a, you know, a mitt or a, or a pad or what have you. Um, it's a visual thing, I think. Yeah. Anyway, th- th- this debate transitions quite nicely to what we're moving on to next. Um, they, w- we get on to the uh, Larry King Live CNN show, uh, and Ken Shamrock uh, is on there representing the UFC, alongside Mark Ratner, uh, the president of the National Association of Athletic Commissioners and the head of the Nevada State Athletic Commission, and and a, a, an interesting an appearance from uh, Senator John McCain, who obviously becomes uh, much more noteworthy. Uh, uh, in a couple of decades time uh, they they have a, a similar kind of discussion to what we have here essentially with the uh, M- McCain is you know 
very much anti-MMA. And so Shamrock, Shamrock starts talking about boxing, as we kind of discussed. Um, and Shamrock basically said, you know, people, people have died in boxing. Nobody's died in mixed martial arts. Um, which, which McCain didn't like. Um, McCain brought up that someone could be badly injured or even maimed in a UFC contest. Shamrock asked if someone could die, basically setting up his opponents for the kill for their depending on a sport that had seen people die in battle on a regular basis. And we then get uh, they were scheduled to do another similar show on Good Morning America with Dan Seven, who, who we're going to see in action tonight. Um, but essentially, uh, the thought process is, is that uh, they were a bit shocked at how well-spoken Ken Shamrock was and how eloquent and, uh, he was. Um, and they didn't. They also felt that not only was he arguing his points very well, but because they wanted to present this vision of these kind of brute uh, of MMA fighters, having someone come on to a big show in a suit looking, you know, Kevin Sharrock's a decent looking bloke, um, and, and eloquently, you know, enunciating himself in, in such a way was kind of damaging their argument. Um, Chris, we kind of t- touched it before, but anything to add to this? Well, it's just like in for McCain to make those points and so other defend boxing but go after MMA in 1995. Uh, 1995 was when the infamous Nigel Benn, Gerald McClellan fight took place which led mm. to McClellan being blind and suffered some short term memory loss. He's hearing impaired he's in a wheelchair entirely as a result of what happened in that fight and he wasn't he didn't get knocked out in that fight he just went to a knee and sort of retired back in his corner and that was it. The damage was already done and that was a world title fight McClellan being an American. It got a lot of attention and it was only maybe, what, eight months before these debates were taking place. So to be so ardently against MMA, but so pro-boxing, is very, very hypocritical from such a high-profile figure within American culture. It's, it's, a, it's a real sort of strange one for me. I can't really wrap my head around how you can be so uh, for one and against the other when damage, serious damage has been done on a high-profile scale within boxing. But I think that was the perception, wasn't it? Was that MMA was this kind of outlaw, no holes barred? And you know, another thing that I didn't mention that, that, that came up in the discussion as well was the idea that you know, there's there's no doctors, and Sharrock said, well, there are, and they said, well, there's no rules, and Sharrock said, well, there are, and he said, well, there's no referees, and well, there are, um, and you know, basically, like uh, McCain. I mean, what, what what annoys me is that, that, that according to YouTube, there is a, a short clip of this in existence, but UFC have taken it down. Um, so I, if I can find it. Between now and when we, the show goes out, I will play it. But we, we haven't got it to to to, uh, to look at, at this point in time. Tom, Tom, any thoughts? No, just that if my imagination uh, is as good as the actual conversation, I would imagine that Shamrock tipped t- t- the sofa backwards, put McCain in an ankle lock, and just screamed at the camera until it went to black. Uh, but that's probably maybe, maybe, maybe that's why they, they don't want us to see it. Maybe, maybe that maybe that's it. Maybe, <laughs> maybe McCain tapped out. Maybe that's the thing, and they don't want him to look like a pussy. Who knows? And uh, another point of discussion, or another point of note from from that interview, uh, was that uh, Larry King asked Shamrock if UFC fights were real or if they were staged, like pro wrestling. Shamrock said that the fights are real, and that if the media aren't going to go after work pro wrestling, even though it's aimed at kids, he said kids see fighters on TV cutting each other and hitting each other with bare fists, and they don't know that it's staged. Now that's quite interesting, given that Shamrock will also go on to wrestle uh, in a few years' time. Um, but we've got this fascinating little. Kind Kind of, you know, dichotomy almost in that UFC is a real sport trying to fend off the idea that it's fake, 
And then in about a year's time, we're, gonna, we're probably going to get to this discussion on the ECW show at some point. When ECW are trying to get on, on pay-per-view, ECW is a fake sport trying to stop people thinking it's real. There's this really odd kind of, you know, two-way thing going about it. But ECW and UFC are actually quite interlinked in these early days on the basis that, you know, not only do some people think UFC is fake, but uh, because of people's preconceived notions of what wrestling was, i.e. WWF in the early 90s, WCW in the early 90s, people thought ECW was, was... MMA people because it was so wild and so out there people thought it was real uh, so we'll get to discuss that as well um, a few more things just to give you an idea of the kind of things that were being said I did pull a few quotes from the uh, from the pro wrestling talks from the observer who were writing about um, USC and pulling some stories from the time uh, Phil Mushtick of the New York Post said quote kicking a man when he's down literally is well within the rules the winner is declared when an opponent surrenders or is knocked unconscious death counts as a loss. Uh, Woody Page of the Denver Post called UFC a quote, modern day human sacrifice. New York State Senator Roy Goodman. We have tapes in which one contestant is down on the mat and another kneels on top of him and either kicks him in the head or punches him until he is virtually knocked senseless. There's a clear invitation to permanent injury, if not fatality. George Will in a syndicated column said paying customers, including slack-jawed children whose parents must be cretins and raving adults whose ferocity away from the arena probably does not arise above muffling epithets at meter maids uh, a quote from john quote from john mccain said usc quote nauseates even the most hardened of individuals and appeals to the lowest common denominator he said yeah, usc emphasizes blood and crippling and on the other side of the quote book is paul valiant who who does end up featuring the show despite not means to be on the card um in Rocky Mountain News on December the 3rd, he said, quote, Look at boxing. There are padded things on the hands, but you're getting punched in the head all night long. With us, you're getting hit a couple of times and you're going to go out. The most humane way to end a battle is quickly and viciously. If they outlaw it here, it'll just go overseas. This is not going to stop. In Japan, they have stuff that makes this look like child's play uh, a couple more things to discuss we, 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 we do get onto the show um, one of the ideas that people well, one of the kind of discussion points that people thought did have a little bit of uh, merit at the time um, and I think it was uh, Dave Meltzer who said it was the only argument that was the least bit compelling from McCain and Ratner was the idea that when a man is down he can be kneed or elbowed and that unlike in any other sport it is considered within the rules I mean obviously uh, Tom th- 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 this is a weird discussion to have knowing what we know now about MMA but is there any validity to that kind of idea you know the idea of combat is you fight on your feet or it certainly was back then um and that you know what do you think about those kind of comments uh they're just comments made by people with no uh factual knowledge of what actually happens and the 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 uh, the methodology behind it and the rules that are applied within it. Um, and they, they, what they don't talk about is the fact that the fighters um, are, can defend themselves at all time, at all times. And as I said earlier, if the referee feels that they can't defending themselves, defend themselves, or they aren't defending themselves, he'll end the fight. It's you know, it, there's, it's no better than with boxing, where if just because someone's wearing a glove, if you get punched a hundred times in the head with a glove. That's going to be worse long term than it is being punched once and being knocked out. There's just no two ways about it. And if you're not wearing gloves, there's no way you can punch someone a hundred times in the head because you're either going to break your knuckle or you're going to break their skull. So uh, it's just, you know, it's all part of the the, the the fact that, you know, as I said, it's a social statement. 
UFC and mixed martial arts are not that well known at this stage. So I think you have to take everything with a pinch of salt. It's like when people say, why do you watch pro wrestling? It's just giant men in pants rolling around with each other. Because that's the immediate thought that people have when they look at it. Um, they don't see it for what it is. And once they actually watched it, you could guarantee they would understand or they'd have a, maybe have a different opinion. But, you know, well, not everybody would. But I'll leave it there. Chris? Yeah, I mean, it's a strange comment because the foundation, like wh- one of the aspects of sort of MMA in general is like, obviously, an opponent can be uh, can throw strikes while on the ground or absorb strikes while on the ground because so much of MMA is wrestling and grappling on the ground and submission of tents and manoeuvring for position. And it's not uh, the quote almost seems to suggest like you can be down and knocked out and the fight will continue, and you will continue to absorb strikes from the top. But that's not entirely... Well, that's not... Not true at all. No. No, it's not true at all. You do absorb strikes well on the ground, but as Tom says, you are defending these strikes in the exact same way people in boxing while on their feet wearing gloves defend strikes. It's it's no different whatsoever. Visually, and maybe emotionally, because the the sort of this idea, like, oh, you fight on your feet more, as you say, it maybe has some sort of logic to it, but in terms of actual practice and reality, fighting on the ground is a huge part of MMA, and it's absolutely no more dangerous than fighting on your feet. It's the same. The fighters, at least within this tournament, because all of them sort of proven within this sport, it's just as sort of legitimate and just as safe. It's, It's exactly the same. It's no different whether it's on the ground or on your feet, so... Yeah, absolutely. I think you two both nailed it. I, I think the, the important part of that kind of line is that you, you can be needle or elbow, but the idea is that you're trying to stop them. Um, and also one of the things about, you know, MMA on the ground is that it is more of a chess match. You, you only have to watch Oleg Taktorov during tonight's show. It's, you know, well, and more so in the, in the super fight last time is that, yes, there is action on the ground, but it's not, it's not this bar fight. It's not someone just pummeling them because as you say, Tom, the minute, the minute it becomes too one sided, the referee will break it up. It is more of a contest. It's a duel on the ground and you can be need on the ground, but the idea is that, uh, you won't be. Uh, one final thing, um, we'll just throw some quick comments on this. Um, Shamrock said on the show, uh, that no bruiser, less skilled brawler has ever been successful in UFC and that smaller technically skilled fighters have been able to eventually defeat the larger, sometimes more brutal bruisers. Um, and I, I, Chris, I thought this was, you know, uh, you know, again, without being able to see it, it's difficult to say this confidently, but I think of all the things that were, were written about this, I think this is one of Shamrock's better arguments. It's not about size or brutality it is a sport of skill. And I, I mean, I don't mean this in the sense that Valians is not a skilled fighter because clearly he is a very skilled wrestler. But we have to look no further than the fight we saw at UFC 7 before Ruha and Valians, where the, the much smaller guy, he gave away about £100 in that fight, was able to defeat him through technical ability and his skill, basically. And it, it shows that this really is a sport and it's not just about who's bigger and it's not a bar fight. Because in a bar fight, you'd have to back Valians in that situation. But it couldn't have played out much, like any more differently, really, in the octagon. And it's just Shamrock's come off the back of looking at these quotes and looking at the debate in 1995. Shamrock comes off looking like a genius almost because he's outsmarting these politicians and governors and people like that. And he's he's taking it to him, and he seems to be winning the debate in almost every aspect to me. Tom, 
I I'm not doubting Shamrock's, um, you know, the, 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 how well he did on that debate. Um, and, and he actually made them look silly by the sound of it, not that we're able to actually see it. Um, one, one thing I would say is that I don't like the idea, that, as we're going into UFC 8, the idea of David versus Goliath. Because if they're trying to steer away from people thinking that it's fake, having that David Goliath thing is making it Hogan Andre at WrestleMania 3. It's can this little guy beat the big guy? And people will go, oh, in a real fight, that had never happened. But, it, but isn't that the point? That they, they set up these short, man, these smaller guys versus big guys. And then with the hope that some of the smaller guys win, then that almost back their argument, providing the, the, the four 270 pound guys don't win it. Yeah, but that's based on the, the, the sort of premise that people watching it believe that it's real. Because otherwise, you know, if somebody, uh, this is the thing, these people that are saying that the, that the product is fake or they don't believe that it's real, I, I would question whether they've seen it. And if they have, have they watched the whole fight? Because if they have, this is the best acting I've ever seen in my fucking life. There's no way you can sell a, sell a punch like these boys do. So, that, that, you know, uh, you've got to look at it from that, from that side as well. Is that they may be making these comments without having seen a single fight in their lives. And Shamrock has done a very good job of selling the, the, the UFC. And uh, he's definitely going to get, you know, people uh, sort of softening their views to it, I think. Because, as you say, he's an eloquent guy. He's, the, the, the David versus Goliath thing is, is fine, I guess. And like you say, Bob, it is real. So people can see it if they know that, it's, that it is real. Um, I just don't. I think it's leaning towards that sports, sports entertainment side of it, and I personally would think that it would be good to steer clear of that at this stage. All right, Tom. I will step out of the presenting seat. You can you can get back into it and uh, take us through the show. Yeah, sure. Thanks. So uh, first of all, we'll um, uh, get through the results um, of, of the show. Um, the uh, whole event was was obviously a tournament, um, and it was it started with four quarterfinal matches, which were then obviously two semis and your final. Uh, there were two alternate bouts, um, but they weren't screened as part of the pay-per-view, so we won't be covering those because uh, we haven't seen them. Okay, so first off, we had Tank Abbott, who defeated Steve Jenham by submission after 1 minutes 14 seconds. Next up, we had Paul Varlands versus Dan Seven, which resulted in a win for Dan Seven, winning by submission after 1 minute 1 seconds. Next up, Dave Benatar was against Oleg Taktorov. Taktorov getting the win via submission after... One minute, 15 seconds. And then fourth up was Keith Hackney versus Marco Huas. Huas getting the win via submission after two minutes and 39 seconds. Okay, the first semi-final, we had Dan Seven, who defeated Tank Abbott via unanimous decision from the judges after the full 18 minutes. We then had Oleg Taktorov, who defeated Marco Huas, again via unanimous decision from all three judges after, again, the full 18 minutes. And then we moved on to our final, which featured Dan Seven versus Oleg Tagtarov, which went the full 27 minutes. We then had our three minutes overtime, which also went to the bell. And we had another unanimous decision on our hands with Dan Seven getting the win and taking the pay. OK, so before we jump into the event itself, I've just got a couple of notes that I wanted to touch on here very briefly, boys. Um, this event is uh, streaming live on the Internet on CompuServe. Um, and I would just like to know how that's possible because I didn't know the internet existed in 1995. And if it did, I would have been straight on there searching for Sonny in a bikini. Well, well thanks for lowering the tone, Tom. Yeah, the internet didn't exist in 1995. <laughs> uh, obviously, it wasn't very prevalent at that point. But yeah, we're, we're starting to see um, 
WWF and WCW around this time mentioning um, America Online and like. Well, are you sure it was a live stream of the show, or was it just kind of you could go online and follow along with the show? I don't know how well. No, they... it was it was a live stream. They said it. There was there was a picture of a computer and everything. Oh, okay. But, um, but I I just, I just found that staggering because I don't know when the first live stream was on internet. I'm presuming this wasn't it because it would it would be a big bigger deal than that. Um, but it's the first I've heard of it from this era. I just thought it was an interesting note. Um, okay, so yeah, um, and also the other point, just to can, just to say, I know we've touched on it already, but there is still no weight classes at this stage uh, in UFC, and I think that's something that um, will will as we go through the matches and we talk about it, particularly a couple of the early ones. Um, it's something that um, it makes a lot of sense to me that they introduced it um, as time went by. Um, so okay. Uh, chaps, just before we before we jump into the results, then let's get some quick overall thoughts from you both on the on the uh, the event in comparison to the last one we watched. Um, you know, it's only been a few months since then. But do you feel that, uh, without going into the ins and outs of the results, do you feel that the product has progressed? Do you feel that there's been some learnings from the last uh, last event? And what have they done differently this time? And what would you like to see them do more of moving forward? So, Chris, let's go to you first. Well, I, the, obviously, the, the major one is the addition of the judges, which were a welcome addition to this show, considering how the semis and the final itself played out. I'd, it would have been a bit of a travesty had they not had them on hand to uh, solve the dilemma of the fights. I, I, I actually enjoyed this particular show less than UFC 7, which was strange because it was notable for being sort of the first UFC tournament filled with fighters who had proven themselves within the UFC octagon in the past. So it wasn't like... They did, I mean, despite all four quarterfinals being notably short, it didn't feel like the... It, it, I, I don't know, I, I just enjoyed it less. There, there was no sort of standout fight to me here. The quarterfinals were too short to be of note, and then the semis and the main didn't feel overly competitive or particularly exciting to watch. They were quite dull, and... Even though they were proven and more legitimate UFC fighters, it fell a bit more flat than UFC 7, which had a bit more sort of a chaotic and exciting feel to it. And maybe a large part of that was down to sort of the wide variety of guys who were in there. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I agree with you on, on most, pretty much everything you said. But I mean, t- touching on what, you know, my point, I, I know the weight class is one thing we talked about, but if the judges is a great addition to this, to this event for you, Chris, what do you think that the UFC are lacking that they can introduce in future events that will really impact the, 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 the sort of presentation, um, of the events and how they flow? Uh, one notable thing about the judges would be the way they give their decisions, which is basically just to write it down on a paddle and hold it up. That was slightly comical. They could I, I want to make that slightly... back. I, I want to make that a thing in 2015. <laughs> just write down on a white circle and just hold it in the air. <laughs> I thought that was a pretty poor way to find out the winner of the fights, despite most of them being quite clear-cut anyway when they did go to the judges. I would have liked it to be some sort of official decision in the octagon with one guy's hand being raised, as is done now. So evolving to what we have now is definitely something. I don't know when they first get away from the judges just writing the name down and hold it in the air, but... I mean, the sooner the better from my, from me. What well, well, quick thing on the judges, I'll bring it up now, I was going to do it later. I, I, I found it quite interesting that they kind of, 
introduce them and like the first guy that got introduced kind of gave like a, a quick wink to the camera and it was a really odd kind of you know you imagine judges of modern day kind of boxing and mma being like you know let's not make them stars let's not draw attention to them they're just there and we get this one it's like yeah smiles big thumbs up um a little bit odd i i, I thought a little bit strange that they were trying to create mini celebrities out of the judges when uh, yeah and as well focusing on them for the results too at a time where you would figure that the judges they probably want to keep you know undercover i would suggest yeah i think they were just trying to add a layer of legitimacy to the fact that the judges were there and they weren't just three people that they dragged off the street you know they all had a reason for being there and they weren't just people that they'd put in at random so i think they they didn't want people thinking oh well it's probably all fixed anyway they're probably judges that they've uh you know that, that work for the company or they they like i say they pulled in off the off the alleyway outside that was my thinking behind it anyway um so bob over, over to you with the same question then uh, in comparison to the last event and, and moving forward what would you say is the you know the key changes leading to this one and what would you like to see as the key changes moving out um, in, in terms of the last event, I, I know what Chris means in that that was probably, uh, I, I would say that was a, a less polished event in that we probably had a, a, a wider range of abilities in terms of the fighters. Certainly in the tournament, as we, as we saw with the super fight, you get two guys that are both very technically sound. You can end up with a very boring fight. Um, but in the tournament stuff, it was a bit more open. Um, you know, when we got Valians and, and, and who are in this one, uh, as well as the previous one, but I think the, the range and the style of fighters in UFC 7 was probably, uh, of much broader depth we got to this one and I, you know, it's the ultimate ultimate the idea was that it was you know guys we'd seen before name guys who are more experienced and, and technically more sound and that probably in a weird way it's quite surprising that all four quarterfinals were so, for, give, uh, so short given the relative abilities of all of the guys involved but as we got to the semi-finals and to the final it kind of showed that yeah we're dealing with four really good strong MMA fighters which at this stage I'm guessing there's a you know uh, if you go down the list you you start finding much less rounded fighters um but as, as we got towards the top um as not say it's a bad show I, I probably found it a, a bit more interesting to watch as a historical piece but I'd agree with Chris in terms of pure enjoyment I think USC 7 it probably tips it um mm. As for going forward, I think the one thing I, I, I'm very keen to see is rounds. And I don't, I think it's UFC 22, I think I was looking up for, before we get the first ever UFC fight with, with more than one round. I think even then it's only two. Um, but yeah, it's, it, in some of the longer fights, it's, I think there's a certain cadence to, to modern MMA matches in that, that you know, you, you get to the big title fight or the main event and you get five rounds and a story can evolve. Whereas when you get these big long slugfests, as, as we're kind of seeing here, is that they, they, they can really start to drag. Whereas in a kind of a five round fight, even when a fight's not particularly interesting, it's kind of like, okay, or well, who run the previous round? What's this guy got to do? And you also end up with, say, after three rounds, of a five round fight you end up with well one guy's lost the first three rounds he's still in it but now the only way to win the fight is to to come out swinging and try and force a result um so yeah we're not going to see rounds for a, a few years yet i don't think um so that that'd be the one big takeaway but yeah i thought um that the presentation is improving the commentators are still you know, it's still a bit hit and miss, but they're getting better at explaining certain things. And that was one thing we mentioned on last show in terms of, you know, contextualizing things for the audience. And I think the other big takeaway fr from this show, and, and certainly it was helped by the change in venues, was that we ended up with probably a, a, a much kind of more responsive crowd in terms of this wasn't the kind of crowd that was going to boo.
boo people when they went to the mat. It got a little bit like that, I think, during Takturov and Who Are, but, but you get that in, in, in modern day USC. You get, if two fighters are too standoffish, then you're gonna get crowd getting quite frustrated. But there was a lot more appreciation for what was going on when it did go to the ground. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, going back to the show, I'd agree with Chris, uh, probably not as fun as UFC 7, but I, I think more, more noteworthy historically. Yeah, yeah, good points, and I, I would agree with you, Bob. I think the, the the main thing that's missing for me, I mean, you can you can polish it up and you can have it smoother as as, as a product and as a as a as a, pro, a program, but the, the addition of rounds really is the big thing for me. I think judges was one, and rounds is two, and everything else you can just sort of tweak slightly and and you know uh, work on it moving forward. Um, but another thing that, that with the introduction of rounds is just cardio. You know, these guys, if, if, they're, if they're having a break between rounds, they're getting a chance to get their breath back. And that makes it a better fight. Because if you put two guys against each other, especially if they're heavyweights, um, for 30 minutes and, you know, they're, they're, they're swinging for 30 minutes, they're going to end up lying on each other. Because there's only so much energy one man has got. It doesn't matter how good your cardio is. If you want to be strong enough to have a, pu- a punch that's going to knock your opponent out, um, you have to have a balanced cardio with your, with your striking game as well. So they can't be just, just fit. They have to have the power as well. So... Uh, I think it's a huge thing, um, and that would be my main takeaway as well. But uh, okay, good points, good points, boys. So let's crack on with the uh, with the first fight. Um, first up, we got Tank Abbott versus Steve Jenham, uh, and it's worth noting that in this fight there is a 55 pound weight difference. Um, as I said, the quarterfinals have got a few of those, and it sort of leveled out. It's leveled itself out as the as the, uh, as the fights went on. To be, to be clear, Abbott's the heavier guy. Just to point that out. Yeah, absolutely. A- A- Abbott's the chunk in in this. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> well, well so, I'm not calling that that to his face, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you wouldn't have a face for long if you did. No. Right. So uh, the fighters are introduced, and we're underway in our first fight. Tank with a big right and a takedown on Jenham. They shuffle to the fence, and Jenham attempts an escape. Tank lands another shot and back in full guard. Jenham taps and Tank hasn't broken a sweat by this point. The fight is over in one minute, 14 seconds, and it was over really before it got started. Um, these, these early fights, boys, we're going to sort of skim over these quite quickly because there's only so much you can say about a minute's worth of action. Um, but any, any initial thoughts? Obviously, it's the first fight of the night. It was, I thought it was quite exciting. Um, it was something that really set the, set the event off on a good note, I thought. Um, and I just think that um, the, the difference in class was pretty obvious. And I thought Tank just, um, it was it was no effort for him at all. And it's so good for him moving into the semis without, as I say, without having broken a sweat. But Chris, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, they said Steve Jenham was the UFC free champion. But, I mean, that seemed like a surprise to me after this minute and 14 seconds. It was pretty much just a squash match. He couldn't deal with the power from the offset, that big right, as you said, and the takedown, and he didn't even have a submission hold on, he just sort of forced him and applied pressure using his head up against the cage, and that was enough, it was, it's hard to go into too much detail about it, it was effectively uh, an MMA squash. Yeah, and I thought that Jenham actually had a de- decent defensive game, you know, he didn't he didn't go down without fighting, it was just, you know, it, it, was, it was an offence that we saw very much later on with Dan Seven, he just couldn't move, he, could, he literally could not get up, um, and it was a, it was a weird um, a, a weird tap out. He, I, I didn't really think I, didn't, I couldn't really see why he did it um, at the time. Um, it didn't really seem that he was in too much pain. But I think he just thought to himself, "I can't get out of this. I can't be asked. I'm 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 done." Um, that's that's <laughs> what I thought anyway. But but Bob, what did you make of it? Um, uh, Chris, forgive an obvious question, but um, or, or, or a new question. But in terms of Monday UFC, you can't really use the cage as a weapon can you you can't you couldn't do what no. Abbott did 
Um, because that, that kind of stuck out to me was kind of just, uh, the interesting thing is that there's that kind of hope spot in the middle of the match where Jedham kind of gets up, um, and then Abbott kind of drags him back into the guard and then just drives him up against the fence. Um, and, uh, Jedham's head ends up in like this really contorted spot because Abbott's basically driving him in and then he just taps out. Yeah, fun fight to watch. Um, very quick. Uh, Abbott, who goes into this show as people's favourite to win it, um, for, for what that's worth too. Yeah, f- f- fun, short fight. Um, and noteworthy again, I, I, certainly for someone who's not seen a ton of modern day stuff, just for a bit jarring seeing someone using the, the, the fence as, as a very definitive attacking move. Yeah, okay. Uh, so moving on to the uh, the second fight, uh, we've got Paul Varlins, previously mentioned Paul Varlins, up against uh, Dan Seven. And it's worth noting that Varlins has a 50 plus pounds weight difference in this fight, um, which I, I struggled to, to believe when I looked at the two of them, because Dan Seven's a really big bloke. Um, but Paul Varlins has got the height on him as well. So I think that's probably where it comes from. It's also worth quickly just mentioning that Varlins up until about three days beforehand wasn't going to be in this tournament. Um, he yeah. subbed in. I can't remember if I got the name of the guy he subbed in for. Uh, Pat Smith. That's the one. Um, so yeah, basically, and, and one of the big stories as well, one of the, the big takeaways I got from reading the Observer in the, in the, the, the Observer, I think the, the one after this event, uh, was talking about Dan Seven and just how ridiculously well prepared he was, both fitness wise in terms of his conditioning, but also in terms of, uh, how well studied he was. And apparently, like, he was, that they, they had everyone scouted, particularly the guys who thought he was going to face in later rounds, like, uh, like Abbott and, uh, and Huha. Um, and so he, he, he's preparing for Pat Smith and then two days before he found out it's going to be Valiant. Um, uh, and Dave Meltzer said, he and his entourage did an all-night cram course in their hotel room, watching Varlian's videotapes to come up with a strategy to shut him down. Yeah, uh, an interesting thought, I, I would say. Um, and it, it obviously worked, um, whatever, whatever it was that they came up with as a game plan. So, OK, uh, it's moving into the actual fight. Um, we get a good look at Dan's moustache, and then we're underway with the fight. Um, seven lands a takedown and tries a left choke. Uh, seven continues uh, in the side mount. Uh, eventually locking in the choke and Varlins taps. This this fight was even quicker than the first. This one only lasted um, a minute and one second. So an even shorter fight to review. However, um, I just thought Varlins was, was completely taken to school here. He looked completely out of his depth um, and didn't know what to do with Seven on top of him. Um, not, not that seemingly anyone knows what to do when Dan Seven is on top of them looking at the fights that precede it. But he tapped out after a minute. So... Um, it was over very quickly and not a lot to say other than that really from me but uh, Chris what did you make of it? Well I was looking forward to see if Paul Violins had learned that he needs to block leg kicks but unfortunately he didn't stay in the tournament long enough for us to find that out after his performance at UFC 7 but uh, yeah it was yeah as you say even shorter than the first fight it was no like he just looked Violins just looked absolutely lost on his back and he had no answer to what Seven was doing. Seven tied him up using Violin's own arms and then just locked in the choke for a quick and decisive win. Again, two, the two winners who have been facing in the semis, uh, Dan Seven and Tank Abbott, neither man absorbing any damage or neither man really breaking a sweat in their two quarterfinal wins. So it should bode at this stage. You're looking forward to a good semi-final matchup between the two. Bob? 
Yeah, um, you know, we we saw we know Valians is no mug. We, we saw that in uh, in the previous show. Um, but yeah, seven kind of made him look like a bit of a mug here. Yeah, I mean, I think there's the bigger takeaway almost isn't the fact that seven was six inches smaller or forty five pounds lighter. It's the fact that you know seven was twelve years older. Um, and yeah, basically, you know, Valians, I get the impression, has a, a very good kind of, what he's good at, he's good at, but he's got a lot of weaknesses. Um, and once Seven got him on the ground, there was, like, he just didn't have a clue. And for a guy who's so much heavier and so much bigger, um, not that Dan Seven's small, but it, it's credit to Seven that once he got on top, he didn't let that go. Um, and, and yeah, another brief fight, and I, I was impressed by Seven the entire night, and, and this certainly um, didn't break that impression. Yeah, OK, so moving on into our third fight, we've got Dave Benatel versus Oleg Taktorov, which is a much more closely matched fight in terms of the uh, um, the stats of both fighters, uh, in terms of their height, weight, and uh, I think age wasn't too far off either on this one. Um, but uh, so the fight starts, and Taktorov moves in quick for looking for a takedown. Benatel fires a left jab that misses the target. He throws a knee during a clinch and attempts a single leg takedown. Taktorov with a roll, looking for an ankle lock, and he brings his opponent down. Benatel tries an illegal kick um, with his boot, which obviously, as we know from previous discussions, isn't allowed. Uh, It doesn't land, and he realises he can't get out of it, and he taps out. Um, The fight was over, uh, again, very quickly, um, in 1 minute 15 seconds. Um, I thought I actually really enjoyed this fight. Um, For the time that it had, I thought it was a really good fight, Um, and and I almost wished it had gone longer. Um, because I got the impression that if, if, if it hadn't been for the ankle lock, um, we could have had a really, really good fight on our hands here, and it was cut too short. Um, but uh, Chris, over to you. No, this was easily the best of the first three fights. I was really impressed with Taktorov and skill and the technique used to roll into that sort of ankle lock or Achilles hip lock. I'm not sure what it quite was, but it was impressive either way. Um, it was probably the most, well, definitely the most competitive of the three fights as well. And T- uh, Tatsarov looked much better here than he did in the super fight with Shamrock at UFC 7. So you'd think, you'd imagine he'd be a major player in this tournament throughout the night after such a uh, impressive performance in the first court final, uh, his first court final. Yeah. Bob, over to you. Yeah, um, Tactor looks very impressive. Um, I, I'm always a, from the MMA stuff I've seen, I'm always a big fan of when a, a guy can go, not like from a ground position, or I suppose when you can do that even better, but when you can go from a low position and, and bring down a guy with a kind of grapevine of the leg, uh, which is kind of what Taktorov did here. Uh, very impressive, and once he tied him up, you know, Benetou did try and kick him in the face, which didn't, didn't, like, I, in my notes, I've got Taktor didn't look pleased, or maybe that's just his normal facial expression. I'm not particularly sure. Um, but yeah, um, a very impressive showing from Taktorov, who, you know, again, th- throughout the night, um, for all of his, you know, for the, he didn't win it, admittedly, um, but in terms of it, his impression, it was like, yeah, this guy, to me, behind seven, just looked incredibly solid in terms of his defensive game. And it was nice because, you know, we, we see in other fights where he's not particularly able to get on offense. It was nice to see what he can do when he's, uh, when he allows himself to attack. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So moving on, our next fight is Keith Hackney versus Marco Hujas. Our man Marco, who, uh, shined like a star in the last event that we watched. Um, it was interesting to note that at this stage, Hujas's age was still undisclosed. Um, and Brazilian men don't like telling their age, apparently, uh, which is the reason that was given. But they think that he's in his 30s. 
So uh, that, that's fine. As long as he's not a 50-year-old looking like he's in his 30s, I suppose that's fine. Um, OK, so we're off. Um, and neither fighter lunges in at the start. Uh, a couple of leg kick, kick attempts and Hackney wildly misses a swing at Huaz. Uh, Huaz pins him into the cage and turns to lock in a reverse naked choke. They hit the mat and Huaz lands a few lefts to the back of Hackney's head and neck. The choke is applied properly. And Hackney taps out. This is the longest fight yet at two minutes and 39 seconds. Um, so this one had a, a slow start, um, but it was the longest fight that we had. Um, and I, but I just thought it was it was blatantly obvious that as soon as it hit the mat, Huhas was going to uh, to get to get the win eventually. Um, but a good fight again, I thought. Um, and, and at this stage, I thought, you know, if I was picking my favourites this stage, I would I would have had my money on Huhas. Um, as we say, that the, the show that he had on the last UFC event was. Uh, evidence enough to, to to put your money behind him, I thought. But uh, Chris, what did you make of it? Yeah, I I really enjoyed this fight. I liked it. I mean, Ruhas going into it when I saw he was in the tournament, he was kind of like my pick to win it. Not as a prediction, but sort of my favourite. He feels like he's our guy after we reviewed UFC 7. Um, so I really wanted him to do well, and he just showed from the off. It was a tentative opening, and they felt each other out for a long time. But the way he held off, and he neither guy wanted to make the first big move of the fight, but he's just so composed, and he's, he's he's stone cold in that octagon. He's so calm, and he just held off and held off and held off, and Hackney just sort of, I don't know, it's a lack of composure, but he throws that wild white hand, and as soon as he does that, when Rua locks in that clinch and takes him down, the fight is as good as over, and I mean, he, he just shows that he is much more skilled and composed than his opponent here. And, yeah, it looks... I mean, all four guys winning by submission in their quarterfinals, and you could make a case for all four having a really decent chance at winning the whole tournament off the back of their performances in their quarterfinals. I was really impressed with this one. Yeah, agreed. And I think Huaz has just got that face of steel, hasn't he? You can imagine, if you're up against him, you just think, what have I got to do against this guy? Because he just... He doesn't show any emotion, and he's so cool, and he's so calm, and he's so collected, and his technique's fantastic. So he's just like... He's like the T-1000 in Terminator 2. It's just like, how do, how do you kill him? Uh, uh, weird comparison to make. That's what I thought anyway. Bob, how about you? Yeah, um, I, I agree with Chris. As well, it's a pretty obvious thing to say. But I, I, the, the, the four, by far the most, you know, four very decisive quarterfinal winners, which set up two really interesting semifinals as well. Yeah, we, we, we saw a lot of, of, of who are um, in the in, in UFC 7. He looked very impressive there. And I, again, I agreed here. I... You know, even though it was kind of a cagey opening, you you never really felt like who I was in any danger. Don't say even the semi that we'll get to. Like, although he lost it, like he, he always looked composed and like he was very assured of what he was going to do. Uh, and once it got near the cage, it was just a matter of time. Gets it on the ground, does some strikes on on the back of Hackney's head, um, and then gets a submission in. Um, yeah, but very very impressive. I'm here with the man who broke UFC wide open, giving Hoist Gracie the fight of his life. He goes by one name, Chemo. Welcome to the Ultimate Ultimate. Thanks a lot. Before I uh, answer any questions, the first thing I want to say is uh, praise to my Lord Jesus Christ. Are you looking forward to coming back to the UFC? I'm very much so. 
I've been training hard, and uh, I think the folks are going to see a different chemo this time. Also. How has your fighting changed since the last time you set foot in the octagon? I've been working on techniques instead of just straight up street brawler. Um, I started actually doing a little technical uh, workouts now. What did you learn from your bout with Gracie? I learned you got to be in a little bit better condition than, uh, than I thought. I learned it's more a sport than just a brawl, which I thought it was before. How about the hair? The hair was definitely a big deal in that fight. Yeah, he used it as a handle and he took advantage of it. Would you want a rematch? Um, I don't look too far ahead. I'm just looking at this fight right now. Tell us about the tournament you just fought in in Hawaii. I just fought in this thing, Pancreation, which is uh, actually, in the, if you look back to the first and second Olympics, it's a sport back then, but they don't have it anymore. It's similar to Ultimate, except you wear little gloves and basically the same rules, which is no rules. And what are your thoughts here about the fighters in the Ultimate Ultimate? I mean, what can I say? If you guys are watching this, these fights, these are probably the best fights I've seen in the Ultimate. How has martial arts, how has martial arts changed since the UFC has come about? Um, I think martial arts now is is going towards a sport where before it was just uh, people looked at it as just straight ahead and, and doing little exercises. Now people are training at it as a sport, well-rounded. As as you know, you got to have stand-up and ground fighting. Whereas before people just concentrated on blocks and and, and different things. So before we have our semi-finals, we are uh, shown an interview with Chemo. Uh, who starts off by praising Jesus Christ uh, and tells us that he's also had a haircut. He says that he's been training hard for his next fight with Ken Shamrock at UFC 8 and that UFC is truly turning into a sport. So up next in our first semi-final, we have Tank Abbott versus Dan Seven. Now, it's worth noting that both semi-finals and the final um, go the distance in terms of time. So uh, my notes will be as, as, as brief as they possibly can. Easier in some fights than the others due to the lack of action, um, but they are more comprehensive than the fights that preceded it. So uh, just just wanted to throw that in there. So um, the fight starts and Abbott takes it to the mat. Seven gets him in the uh, seven sorry hits him in the face and piles on the offense. Uh, Tank takes the shots and shows no signs of standing at this point. Uh, seven stays atop for several more minutes with countless elbows and knees. Um, seven seems to tire and slaps Tank on the back of his head. Uh, this is where the slapping was introduced, and I think it was introduced because um, Seven didn't have the, the the energy to punch at this stage. Um, but he continued way into the, the fights that preceded it, which which confused me greatly. But um, strangely, no choke attempt is applied when Seven is on top on this stage, um, which I thought was bizarre. Um, but he did try it eventually, uh, and it didn't connect. Um, Seven threw some big knees, uh, and Tank keeps his guard up and defense, defends very well. Um, really, actually, impressively takes an incredible amount of damage when he's on the ground. Uh, this continues long into the fight, and after a few reverse headbutts from Abbott, he finally stands. Um, Seven clings on to the reverse clinch and won't let go of him, and the crowd were enthusiastically cheering for Tank. He throws a few elbows, but Seven keeps him from moving. Uh, finally, they break, only for the bell to go and for the fight to be over. We move to the judges, and Dan Seven wins unanimous, uh, unanimously, Moving into the finals. Uh, so, uh, this fight did go the distance. It went the full 18 minutes. Um, I, I don't think it was a great fight. Um, I, I think it showed two things that were clear for me. One, that um, uh, Tank couldn't combat Seven's wrestling, which was very impressive. And also, Dan Seven doesn't know how to finish a fight. Uh, really. He hasn't, he hasn't got... That's not part of his arsenal. Um, and I, I, that was why it went the distance that it did and why it was as one-sided as it was for me. Um, Chris, your thoughts? 
Yeah, uh, while I was preparing for this, I found a quote from Tank Abbott about this fight. And he said it was in 2005, this quote, but the quote is, during that fight, I felt like I was being raped by Freddie Mercury, which is his (laughs) entire take on this 18 minutes. And to be fair, having seen the fight, it's a pretty accurate description of what happened because it was a dominant performance. And most of the fight, well, once Seven put him down, he never really looked like, getting free and he he looked a bit trapped on the floor basically and it was it was quite dull as a result I mean and you're right about Seven not being able to finish the fight because I, I couldn't quite work out whether he even wanted to I don't know if he thought attempting to finish the fight with sort of kicks and elbows or sorry punches and elbows from the top or even submission attempts he would create an opportunity for Tank to get out and expend a lot of energy so he was quite happily just sort of stifling him and throwing just enough elbows and knees to sort of keep him in place, but not really look to finish it. I didn't know whether it was really strategy or an inability to, or dis- inability to actually finish the fight from the top in such a dominant position. But either way, it was a clear unanimous decision victory. The judges got it absolutely right. Um, only very briefly did Abbott sort of get to his feet at the end as you said and he didn't really uh do any damage throughout the fight so yeah a, a clear victory but Dan Seven even though it was an 18 minute fight I don't think he would have expended too much energy uh just being on top of Tank Abbott didn't really take much damage either so he looks to be in good shape heading into the final of the tournament yeah, and Chris, what, what do you make of the fact that, you know, the fight did go the full 18, and as far as I recall, I haven't got it noted down, that Big John broke the fight up once, um, considering um, Seven had him in full mount for pretty much the whole fight. I mean, I would say at least 85% of the fight, um, and there was no break. What do you make of that? Because, you know, it doesn't make for particularly entertaining viewing for the, for the audience and for the crowd that have paid their money to go in there. Um, is it right? Should it? Did you think it should have been broken up, or did you actually think that it was, you know, John was right to let it go the way he did? I mean, for the entertainment factor, obviously standing them up and breaking them up would have been much better. But generally speaking, Seven did stay active. He didn't just sort of lay on top of him and like let time tick away. He did stay active. He did throw a select amount of elbows and knees and what. And I think he just stayed active enough to justify it. Big John's decision not to break the fight up and stand them back up. From an entertainment factor, of course, I'd have liked to see them stand up. And that once they were on the floor, the only chance Tank Abbott really had was for Big John to stand them back up again. And because it didn't came, it didn't come. It was it was unfortunately for Tank and unfortunately for the crowd who were really behind him. Um, it wasn't to be, but I I can see what you mean. It definitely, that you can make a case for him being stood up, but I did think he stayed active enough, even though he wasn't landing significant strikes. He was still landing strikes quite consistently. Yeah, OK, thanks. Uh, Bob, over to you. The same question. What did you make of the fight? And also, what did you make of the fact that there were no breaks and that it, you know, it went the full distance with uh, uh, minimal action in terms of you know, stand-up game? Yeah, no, I agree with Chris. I think there was enough going on on the ground. It, it, you know, from a, from a purely kind of watching standpoint, it didn't feel like it dragged um, in terms of, like, say, the, the the second semi where we got some long spells on the ground where not a lot happened. Um, you know, Seven was doing enough where I don't think it would have been fair for McCarthy to justifiably go, yeah, let's get this up when Seven was was clearly working something. Yeah, this was probably the only blot on on Seven's record the entire night was that he kind of did blow his load quite early having got onto the ground 
Are we talking about Freddie Mercury again? No, we're not. We're not. (laughs) Nobody's nobody's breaking free here or anything like that. Um, (laughs) But no, I mean, just in terms of when it got on the ground, he was really trying to work the strikes. Um, And in my notes, I kind of got, I kind of put down, he should have gone for the submission earlier. Um, Not necessarily say he would have got it on, but by the time he tried the choke, um, he didn't have enough energy to be able to get through tax defences. Uh, went for some knees, but yeah, I, I think if he'd have, if he'd have paced this match better, he might have won it inside the time, but he probably just expended too much energy. Uh, but yeah, still very impressive. Um, and Abbott went into this match, as I say earlier on, Abbott went into this tournament really as the favourite. Um, and after the match, it is worth noting that Abbott did not hang around for the judge's decision, he just left the octagon, um, just because it was so inevitable that he'd lost. Yeah, you can't say you blame him after watching the fight. Uh, no. he, he'd have had to have been punched a lot harder in the head than he was uh, to, to, to think that. And that's something else I was just going to touch on is, is you know, Seven, um, we can talk about it because we've, we've already announced the results, but he goes on to win the tournament. And really, for a guy that really isn't known for his striking game, and he, the guy can't really punch. I mean, he, he landed, I think, one punch all evening that had any sort of impact. Even his elbows didn't seem to, seem to do that much damage. Uh, is, do you guys think that's a sign that, his game, his wrestling background, and his sort of like mount your opponent and don't let them move. Um, do you think it's actually that actually no one has the know-how to how to combat that at this stage? Or is it just that when a guy is that big and he weighs as much as he does and he's so, uh, you know, so well-versed in that side of, uh, of the fighting, um, is it non-combatable? Um, Chris, what do you think? He's clearly a fighter of attrition who likes to sort of ground opponents down either for, and it's not through consistent strikes or whatever. It's just, it, a lot of it is his grappling and things like that and I think a lot of it, it has to do with his style and him being so skilled but also as Bob said earlier what Dave Meltzer was talking about I, how well trained he was for each guy he would have set up exactly how he was going to fight Tank what made me think maybe he didn't want to finish the fight which sounds strange but uh, it was almost as if he was content to throw enough strikes that he knew he wasn't allow- going to allow Tank an opportunity to stand up, but he was never going to do significant damage or consistent damage that would see the fight be stopped early. And he was content with that. And I think he was a very, he was very structured and in his tactics throughout the night. And he, he focuses on his strengths very well and didn't keep fights. He didn't look to use his striking because it's not one of his strengths and I think it, he played he played it perfectly and a large part of that has to be down to how he prepared for this tournament yeah okay Bob anything to add on that uh, well, while I remember uh, it is worth noting that Dan Seven is at this stage the current NWA uh, world heavyweight wrestling champion uh, obviously fake wrestling we're talking about here uh, as I just consulted this Wikipedia page that a title he held for over four years uh, wow. Which is yeah, February '95 to March '99. I think that says probably more about you know the fact he was doing other things rather than he was dominating the wrestling world. Um, but yeah, to, to answer the question, I think it was more of a case of because the takedown defenses weren't what they were. I think he probably had in the back of his mind, I can get all these guys on the floor, and when I can, I can win it. Um, and so I think it was more of a case of I don't need to stand with any of these guys because I, I can block good offense and I can get it on the ground easily enough. I think it was just more of a case that he was so confident in his ground game that he didn't, that nobody ever was able to keep him up where it was ever a problem. Yeah, okay, so moving on, um, we have our next semi-final, which is Oleg Taktorov versus Marco Hujas. Uh The fight starts and Taktorov attempts to take down. 
Huhas throws a few stiff leg kicks, which we've seen once or twice before. Taktorov takes Huhas to the cage, and we go to the ground. Taktorov has a nasty cut on his forehead. Huhas is in full mount, but Taktorov cleverly gets himself up with some help from the cage. Uh, Oleg misses a leg takedown, but follows up with a huge left hand. Uh, Huhas is immediately cut on his face from that. Taktorov drops with the choke, but Huhas sees it out with his rubber neck. Big John breaks the fight up, and both men are back on their feet. Uh, they go to their corners, and the doc sees the Taktorov, and the fight resumes. Uh, a standoff is held, with a few kicks and strike attempts. Uh, the crowd loudly boo as the standoff continues, minute by minute. Oleg, attempt, uh, Oleg attempts the takedown twice, and who has seemingly does not want to fight this man. This continues all the way to the bell, and we go to the judges, who give a unanimous decision, and Oleg Taktorov will fight Dan Seven in the final fight of the evening. So, uh, boys, second semi-final. Um, what do we make of this one? Bob, over to you first. Yeah, um, I, I think in terms of the entertainment factor or entertaining fights of the night, this is by far the worst. Um, two guys that, and you know, this was probably the first time, the first match where who are faced up against the guy who was probably technically as sound as he was, and I think that showed in the fight. And what one interesting question to ask in a minute is potentially how Huha would have got on against um, Abbott or Seven had he been in the other side of the draw uh, against somebody who maybe you could have opened up a little bit more. Um, but in terms of the fight, yeah, it, it wasn't the best in terms of entertainment value. A little cagey, certainly at the start and at the end. Um, and perhaps, you know, you know, and that there's there's some controversy over whether the fight should have even continued in terms of the severity of Taktoros cut above his eye, um, but it did, and I think he he won the fight. I mean, I, I watched the fight and was getting to the end, and okay, I I, I knew what happened, but I thought, yeah, Taktoros is going to win this um, just because of probably that that kind of um, choke on the ground in the middle. Other than that, it was fairly even, but I don't know that other than the cut, Huha could could really say that he got enough offense into uh, to really claim any kind of controversy over the uh, the judge's decision, I think they got it about right. Yeah, who has actually claimed that he, he was hard done by with the decision? Okay. Um, which, which I think, I don't really see where he was coming from, because if, you know, as they stated at the start of the show, if you're basing it on offence, um, strikes landed, um, choke attempts or submission attempts, we should say, um, and defence does play a part in it, but you don't win a fight because you get out of a chokehold. That's not how it works. Um, so I was surprised to hear that. Um, and I thought that Taktorov had the, the he was a f- much more offensive. He was forthcoming, whereas Huhas was constantly withdrawing. And, and this is where we talked about, um, you know, uh, fights going the distance and fighters, when the judges weren't around, a fight could go the distance and a draw could be given. And you could play it like that. And I don't know whether Huhas sort of hadn't developed his game on the knowledge that judges would be there. I find that very hard to believe. But when we talk about Dan Seven, he had a game plan for every single fight. And I didn't see that Huhas had a game plan in this fight. He seemed to be a little bit out of, out of, out of his, uh, not out of his depth, but he just seemed to not know how to handle um, handle the fight. Um, Chris, over to you. What do you think? I'm slightly less in agreement with the judge's decision. I think they did just about get it right, but if if it had gone the other way, I feel like if you gave this fight to modern MMA UFC judges, they may lean towards uh, Huha because of the fact that Taktorov really did no damage throughout the fight, and he applied that chokehold, as you said, and you are right, you don't win a fight on the basis of being able to get out of a chokehold, but he attempted a submission, and Uha never really looked in danger, he never really looked like he was in any pain, or he never really looked like he 
his breathing was struggling from that choke attempt. So it didn't really stick in my mind through to the end of the fight. I mean, it was a fight of sort of two halves. I mean, in the notes I took away from it, I've got like maybe 10 or so noteworthy aspects from the first nine minutes. And then I've write nine minutes remaining. And then I have very little happens. And so it really, the second half of this fight was really dull. And, and as you said, Uha just backed off and Taktarov pushed forward, but he never really did any damage for me. And I think the cuts on Taktarov show that he did actually stay in a fair amount of damage in this fight. And I think you could make a case that some judges may see the significance of his strikes slightly with, with slight more emphasis than just the fact that Taktarov was the one walking forward. Because although he was walking forward, he didn't often take... Uha down and his take his, his takedown offense was quite strong throughout and impressed me quite a lot so I, I do think it was probably the right decision but I don't think it was just as clear cut as you two do mm, okay fair, fair point I, I mean I think with the cuts the, the commentators touched upon it but I think they said that due to the amount of damage that he'd taken inside the octagon um, those cuts weren't that hard to uh, to make and I, I remember one of the commentators saying something like if I slapped him in the face I'm, I'm convinced I'd, I'd cause blood to run down it. Um, so I think they were, they were suggesting that actually Huhas didn't actually have to hit him very hard in order to get those cuts. But I know what you mean. I know what you mean. It may be looked on differently in, in current um, UFC world because um, uh, an offensive game does involve um, actually connecting with your strikes and takedowns that, that really impact and, and have an effect on your opponent. Um, yeah, Bob, anything else to add? Um, no, just to tee up the question I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, uh, do you think Hoo-Ha would have been more successful against Abbott or Seven in the, in the semi had he been in the other side of the draw? I think him against Abbott could have been a lot of fun. I don't know that he'd have beaten Dan Seven. Um, but against uh, Abbott, who was a more aggressive guy, I think that could have been a fascinating fight. Tom? Uh, yeah, sorry, I, I, I was going to let Chris lead the way, yeah. but I... I think it, it would have been interesting. I, I, I still found I found this fight to be very confusing. I was actually really disappointed because Hoohas was my guy coming out of um, UFC 7, and I, and I really, really wanted to see him. I was looking forward to seeing him. And yes, there may be an argument to be made to say that it's because of who he, who he was up against that, that he adopted the fight style that he did. Um, but then again, you talk about how he fought against Varlands, and really it was a patient game that he had in that. He didn't, he didn't go in with any sort of uh, uh, choke attempts or any uh, takedowns as such. He, he, he worked the leg. Um, and he, he broke him down, didn't he? I think I, that's yeah. why I, I think feel like the Abbott fight would have been a really interesting one. Just it would have been interesting to see had Abbott have come out a bit quicker. One whether Huha could have it, uh, could have. Uh, maintain that early on, kind of withstood that early pressure, and then how he would have gone about trying to break him down later on. I think that would be an interesting fight. I don't know that he'd beaten down seven um, for, for similar kind of reasons here. Um, but yeah, I, I think he, in his mind, he may have drawn um, the, the worst possible semi-final opponent, the guy that was going to come out against him the least. Chris, what do you think? No, I think it would, him versus Tank Abbott definitely would have been a fight I'd have liked to see. But I haven't seen too much of Tank Abbott's offence, having had a, him having had a really quick quarterfinal, and then not really get much in in the semi-final. But just off the back of the uh, main event from UFC 7, that definitely seems like it would be an enticing matchup, and it'd be interesting to see if he would be able to. Ha- uh, Ruha would be able to handle the. Uh, 
the strength advantage and the the power advantage that uh, Abbott would have in the same way he handled that from Volians in that main event. So I, that would have been a fight I'd like to see. Um, but I think, yeah, he just came up against a fighter who matched him on technique here. And when that happened, he didn't really have an answer to it. Yeah, and it's worth noting here that this was uh, Huas's last fight for the UFC. Um, he didn't stick around after this, so I don't know if there's something to be said there. Maybe he uh, went into it knowing it was going to be his last fight, or maybe he, he, he realised halfway through, or even after it was done, uh, he didn't want to continue um, with the company. But that does. It's, it's worth saying that after the final, Takturov never appears from them again either. Um, mm, I, I, I yeah. did look at that earlier as well, so I don't know whether there's any significance to that or not. Um, I guess I guess we'll, 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 we'll find out when we research kind of future shows. Um, but yeah, Taktorov wrestles, uh, wrestles uh, does his final fight in, in, in the match you're about to introduce, Tom. Right, people are talking about Shamrock versus Chemo. That's right, Shamrock versus Chemo. It's UFC 8, David and Goliath tournament, tonnage versus technique. Don't miss it live. Friday, February 16th, only on pay-per-view. And Ken Shamrock, the super fight champion, joins me now, and it's Chemo against Shamrock. What are your early thoughts? Well, you know, Kimo's big and strong, and uh, he's dangerous. So uh, it's it's just like these rest of these guys. You know, you got to go in here mentally and physically prepared to fight because none of these guys are easy, none of them. And, and when you step into that octagon, you better have your thinking cap on and you better have your physical shape in top condition. These guys are tough. Do you like the super fight format? Yes, I do. Uh, I fought in many, many tournaments earlier in my career, and um, I earned the right to be in a, in a super fight. And I fought Hoyes to a draw, and the title was pushed over into, uh, the title was unheld. So I fought Dan Severn, and I beat Dan Severn. So I won the title, and I fought Oleg and went to a draw. I still had the title, so I kept the title. So, you know, I've earned that earned that spot, and until I lose it, I'm staying. Ken, what about tonight? What are your thoughts, first of all, on how quickly the quarterfinals went? Well, you know, I kind of I kind of expected that, except for one of them. But, you know, these guys are so good when they step into the ring that at any given moment, anybody makes a mistake, the fight could be over. If you notice, all the preliminary fights were won by submission except for Dan Severns, and that went to a draw. But all the other ones were hooked. They were hooked. All right, what about the second round? As we advance to the finals, both had to go to the judges, which is a new concept for the UFC. Number one, do you like the judges' format? Number two, what did you think of the fights? Yeah, I like the judges' format because... um. It's not fair when someone really fights hard and another person kind of backs off and backs off and just basically waits his time and gets a draw, then basically both lose. And I don't I don't think that's right, especially in this format when your time limit is pushed on you and you have to fight to a time limit. So I think the judges, you got to go with it. It creates controversy. It's good for it. You know, um, I didn't see any controversy in the fights tonight. They were all... Well, who else complained and said that he got a bad deal? you agree or disagree? No, I think what they were looking at is what Oleg looked like and what Huas looked like. And if you were going to go by what someone looked like, of course, Huas would have won the fight. But if you're going by strategy, aggressiveness, the man that was pushing the fight, the man that went to the ground, did have two submission holds on him, could have ended the fight at any time except Huas got out. Just because he gets out of a hole doesn't mean that he wins the fight. It just means the other guy should have two points and the other guy doesn't have any. And as far as standing up, I think I gave who was just the edge, but not enough to win the fight. So we have uh, an interview with Ken Shamrock um, and he shares his thoughts on fighting uh, Chemo at UFC 8. Uh, he's also sporting a beautiful white scarf, um, which shouldn't be knocked by anybody. 
Uh, but we also find out that Shamrock is going to be providing commentary in our final fight, uh, which is up next. Um, but before we go to that, boys, let's just, just go to you both for some quick thoughts. Um, you know, we had a couple of interviews here in, in the pro wrestling world. We'd call them promos, but these weren't promos because they were, you know, uh, actual interviews. So we'd call them shoot, shoot interviews, I guess. Um, but they, they were purely done in my eyes for the advertising of UFC 8, which is, makes good sense. Um, Shamrock, we talked about earlier. Chemo is new to the company. Um, that was the first interview we came across. What, what were your thoughts on him? And also, um, what were your thoughts on Shamrock? And, and do we think this is a good idea of the interviews and uh, plugging future events um, moving forwards? Chris, what did you make of these? Yeah, I mean, it was a it was a good interview. Shamrock comes across really well in it. He put Chemo over as a as a tough guy and a viable opponent. And he spoke about the super fight format and how that. He is going to maintain his position as that sort of super fight champion until someone comes and takes it from him. So it is really building towards that event at UFC 8, plugging it to people who uh, have ordered this pay-per-view and might be back for that one. So it makes perfect business sense. And Shamrock is a great sort of figurehead to draw fans in at this stage. Uh, I liked his comments on the judges, but I remember from UFC 7, him and Taktaro are training partners at this stage. So his take on the judges is very beneficial to the fight we've just seen between uh, Taktarov and Uha in that he says guys who don't bring the fight shouldn't have, should, should, shouldn't be able to win a fight if you're not the aggressor in it. And things like that, which clearly favour Taktarov in the semi-final we've just seen. But I thought it was a, uh, a good interview and a, a solid uh, promo, as you'd say. And I, I Quite enjoyed seeing Shamrock, and I look for, looking forward to seeing him fight at UFC 8. Yeah, what did you make of Chemo? I think Chemo, I mean, I think he came across slightly, like, as a, definitely as tough, but slightly comical. He's slightly intriguing to me. Uh, I, I liked the, I liked what he was wearing and things like that. I thought, I, I, I don't know, I thought his introduction, considering it is the first time UFC fans will have seen him, and he's being brought in for this super fight as it's called was the, there's something lacking they didn't really build him up in his interview i thought shamrock did a better job building him up as a threat and a tough guy than chemo did himself yeah okay bob thoughts contrast these two interviews with the interview with with tank albert from from ufc 7 now okay albert's a very different character to these two i get the impression um but in terms of albert was an archetypal wrestling promo. This, I won't call it scripted, but this felt very much like in the aftermath of what had gone on in the press, what we discussed earlier, it felt like, and I'm not saying they were, they were faking these comments and there were certainly some interesting points, but it felt like they were both towing the party line. They were talking about respect. Chemo commented earlier about how, you know, it's more of a sport than just a brawl. And he talked about how these days people are training very much as well-rounded fighters. And uh, if Sharon doesn't say it during the interview, he certainly says the similar kind of thing when he commentates on the main event as well, just how, you know, we're seeing much more rounded fighters these days. And again, I'm, I don't know how it would whether it would have been any different had we not have had all the stuff that that came before the show, um, but I found it very interesting. And not so that I, I found both both interviews very interesting. They built up the the respect for each other, but also I felt like they were even if it wasn't a USC led move, I felt that like they were both went in there thinking we need to 
build up this as a sport after what's gone on. Particularly Shamrock, who's been involved in a lot of it, uh, took the kind of take the opportunity to contextualise what we're seeing. But no, both both very interesting interviews and uh, got me more interested in UFC eight. So you know, uh, job well done, I suppose as well. Yeah, was it wasn't just me, or did either of you think that Ken Shamrock has been recently watching The Godfather? No, I, do- I don't know enough about The Godfather, unfortunately. Okay, you, I did. Well, Don Leone wears a white scarf, so that's where I'm coming from with that one. Okay. Uh, okay. Unfortunately, you seem to have picked two of the only people who have not seen any of the Godfather movies. Uh, I have, uh, but I didn't immediately pick up on the reference. Okay. okay. All right. I think, well, I, think, I, think I, I think I've seen the first one as well, actually. But yeah. I'll tell you what, Bob. You, you should watch it because I'm giving you an offer that you couldn't refuse. Right. So you won't get that. <laughs> but moving on. Uh, moving wow. on. Wow. Wow. Yeah. There we <laughs> go. That's the worst Godfather impression you'll ever hear. Yeah, we're, we're deep into this taping. This is uh, this is where we're getting. But yeah, carry yeah. on, Tom. So, moving on. Up next, we have our big final fight of the evening. It's Dan Seven versus Oleg Taktorov. Um, Just to quickly jump in, Tom, uh, you may, sorry if I'm cutting off, but I, I wanted to get this in because this happens right at the start of the fight. Uh, the commentator says, it's the USA against Russia, and my kind of head in my hands, like, really, we're doing this? And then the minute he, literally, the second he stops saying it, the crowd's like going, USA, USA. <laughs> I just read it's 1993 WWF, it's the USA against Russia, of course it is. But, now, I, you may well be about to say that, Tom, but I just thought in case you wouldn't, I, I put that in, because... No. I thought it was quite funny. It happened right at the start. Yeah, I contemplated making a, making a Rocky Four reference, but the fact that you haven't seen Godfather made me think that it'd probably go straight over your head. So yeah, you'd be good. correct. I, I've got I've got the Rocky <laughs> movie. I've got the Rocky movies to watch, but yeah, that that would have flown over my head as well. Yeah, yeah, okay. So uh, yeah, other than the USA chance, um, the, the, the fight starts and Seven tries to slap open Oleg's, uh, Oleg's wounds that he suffered in the previous fight. Uh, Taktorov slips. Seven dives in and Oleg rolls him up uh, with an Achilles hold. Uh, Seven stands and rolls out onto full mount on top of Taktorov. Uh, Oleg is bleeding again. Uh, Seven throws headbutts and contrary to the commentators, Big John lets the fight roll on. Uh, Shamrock states on commentary, this fight will not go to a draw. As Seven refuses to let Oleg up um, as much as he may try, Oleg lifts himself up to one foot and clings to the cage as Seven once again stays in mount and flattens him like a pancake down to the ground. Uh, Big John breaks the fight up and we go to the corners. The fight continues and punches are thrown. Uh, before, guess what, everybody? Seven pins Oleg to the mat in full mount. Two minutes later and Big John restarts the fight once again. They stand off for a few minutes and we're back on the ground. 27 minutes suddenly seems like 27 years at this stage. The bell goes at the 27-minute time limit, and we go into the three minutes overtime as advertised. Uh, overtime starts, and Oleg tries the takedown, but takes a right hand to the head for his efforts. Uh, not a lot else happens. Uh, the fight is over, and we go to the judges who um, award the event and the $250,000 prize money to Daniel Seven. 150000 250000 was the total purse. The winner got 150, and the rest was split among the other fighters. Oh, see, I thought that was a mistake on commentary because they said 250 and then the next guy said 150 and I thought it was a blunder. But no, I, I've got that in my notes at the start and at the end. Uh, $250,000 purse, $150,000 to the winner. So I think, I think that's right. Well, either way, it's a lot of money and yeah. uh, Dan, Dan Seven did a lot of lying around to get that money. So um, that's the end of, uh, that was the end of the, of the tournament and Dan Seven is our winner. Uh, so, boys, 
this was the final. This was the big 30-minute match. Um, you know, there's, there's obviously a few things to talk about here. Um, one being that Seven actually won, won the tournament. The other being the length of the fight and the other being the fight itself. And obviously we'd like to touch on Taktaroff and his game plan as well. Um, Chris, what did you make of the fight overall? Uh, 30-minute fight's a long fight. Um, they can be epic wars and they can be um, prolonged bore fests. What did you make of it? Uh, it definitely turned into that bore fest, as you say, but the opening to the fight was really exciting. I, I, even no matter what you think of it for a, from a manly standpoint, those slapping combinations from seven at the start were pretty hilarious. It, they were they, it, there were just so many slaps coming in at Taktorov's face. And, uh, they said, like, it was to open up the wounds, but it's also a large part of it's probably down to not wanting to damage his hands by throwing punches. But he certainly did the job and opened, uh, Tactorus, uh, wounds up quite profusely. But there was a great sequence, that sequence where Tactorov, uh, slips and seven, seven grabs him, but Tactorov rolls through into that knee bar, which is the same move we'd seen him use in both the semis and the quarterfinals. It's almost like it's becoming a signature move. And when he did that, that sequence where he's attempting the knee bar and the Achilles hold and Seven just keeps rolling out of it and rolling out of it and rolling out of it and ends up uh, against the cage and somehow ends up in top on half guard. That was a fantastic sequence. But yeah, it was amazing. But that's going for, for that knee bar again. It was almost like in pro wrestling someone hitting their signature move. I popped for that. I wanted him to win the fight. And I looked at, at some stage he was going to. I think it was Shamrock on commentary showered, it's over. They thought it was on tight. And it didn't look like Seven was going to be able to get out of it. But he, the, the way he rolled out of it was magnificent. But the attempt itself was equally as impressive to me. Um but it was all kind of downhill from there. Their headbutts on top from seven were, looked pretty brutal. They were certainly um, memorable, to say the least. They looked really brutal. And the amount of blood that's coming out of the as a result of them and sort of these welts on his forehead and skull, they were, they, it was quite hideous, really. Uh, but seven was in complete control from the top, really. And uh, the, it's sort of pulled back into that sort of semi-final we saw with Tank Abbott in that... He was just on top, but he didn't look to finish the fight, really. He was just dominant on top, and the Big John stood them up a lot more in this one. I don't know if someone had a word with him outside in between the fights and said, look, if that happens in the final, you've got to be standing them up quicker. But he certainly did here. And uh, very little happened once they got to about 15 minutes remaining of the regular fight, and they just both looked exhausted. Um, but And by the overtime, I mean, the overtime was almost comical in the... The amount of energy both men had, I think, by that stage, they'd both been in fights on that night for 50 minutes, like nearly, well, totally just about 50 minutes. And uh, it certainly showed. But, yeah, it was the right winner. And on the night, definitely the most impressive fighter. He went in there and he, he looked powerful. He looked good on the ground. And he looked like he had a game plan and he executed it perfectly. So Dan Seven was definitely a worthy winner of this fight and a worthy winner of the fight uh, tournament overall. Okay, Bob, over to you. Yeah, um, I, I, I won't be as uh, exhausted as Chris, largely because I, I, I pretty much was going to say what he was going to. Uh, the, the, the bit with the knee bar into the roll through is a fantastic moment early on in the fight. Um, just in terms of there's a brief second where you think, oh, Taktoros got him. And I'm not even quite sure how Seven managed, not just to get out of it, but almost like he knew it was coming. Like, there was no flinch. Like, Taktoros goes to take him down and Seven just rolls out. It was a fantastic moment. Uh, the only 
little thing really that Chris didn't cover, which I thought was quite nice, is that when um, when uh, Seven had Taktorov in the mount and um, Taktorov was bleeding to the point where it's like, well, his vision must be impaired. One of the contacts did a really good job of saying, well, look, uh, he might not be able to see, but at least while he's on the ground in the guard, he, he he'll be able to feel where Seven is. So I thought that was that was a quite a nice bit of commentary, just getting over the idea that you know he might not be able to see, but he's he's still able to keep in control just because he can he can feel his way around. And yeah, after 15 minutes, maybe you can tell both these guys are just starting to blow up. Um, and I agree, I think in the overtime, they were just both knackered. Um, and neither man city wanted to risk it at that stage by doing so much stupid. But yeah, a, uh, um, I wouldn't call it a great fight, but I think the first kind of 12 minutes or so were really, really interesting. And then it just kind of went a bit downhill once they both sapped themselves of energy. Um, but seven, uh, as we said throughout, incredibly impressive. I mean, 37 years old. Um, and, and, and looks, the most complete fighter of anyone on the card. I mean, Taktorov, as we've seen on last show and this one, is a incredibly good defensive fighter. And that's not a criticism, it's just an observation. His defensive technique is very good. Um, but Seven, I, I, I think, takes it just for the fact he's probably got the best all-round game and the, his, his overall, he doesn't really seem to have any weaknesses and he seems to have enough going on offense. And I, I don't think there's, I don't think any of us would, would doubt the decision. I think a, a unanimous uh, victory for Seven and final yeah I, I think i agree with you um i i think that the the 27 minute um limit is one thing the three minute overtime is another um but i think that it, when you talk about it it's it's a, it was a fight of two halves if, if you if you had done what actually the ufc go on to do that you, you mentioned earlier but bob and you touched upon it is they broke it in half and you have two rounds that in theory could give you two fights like the first 15 minutes of this one um however when you've got a guy with, that has a game plan like Dan Seven, you're always at the risk of him taking that mount position and not letting his opponent up. And some of them, like his first opponent, will tap out because they think, I can't move, I, I'm done for. And some of them have got the, uh, the defensive awareness and the, um, uh, the skill to, to stay, there, stay down there and to hopefully wriggle their way out and, and mount an offense of their own. Um, but I think that the 27-minute time limit is far too long. I don't um, really understand what. Why is it 27 minutes and then a three-minute overtime? That really like. I think it's so it keeps the half hour overall. Yeah, but it's it, it's, just, it's just, just it's go a half hour. But it's just a really odd combination of a really long main fight and then a really short overtime. It's like if there's no winner in 27 minutes, what you know, other than the fact that well, when, when the restart happens, uh, they get stood up. Um, other than that, what's the benefit of having the three-minute overtime? John McCarthy can stand them up if you want to do that, and you know they can have a quick break. But it just—it seems it, it, mathematically, it seems weird to have such a long fight and then such a short overtime. Just seems weird, particularly when there's no real, there's no real kind of, you know, it's not. This is a really bad example. When you think, say, when it was like kind of goal and goal in football, when it's like, say, if it was like first guy who can land a punch or first guy who can land a knockdown or whatever wins the fight. It's not a, it's not overtime with an immediate cut off where it's like, okay, this is how you win. It's just three more minutes if you can't find a winner in 27 minutes what difference does the extra three make yeah i, I thought it was interesting the commentary team sold it as if it was the golden goal i, I remember shamrock saying oh i think these guys are holding back we're going to get down to a minute and it's going to go gonna, there's going to be big attempts made and they're going to fly at each other it gets to a minute and seven was sort of doing his muhammad ali thing and bouncing around and it, it, it didn't go anywhere 
Um, so I wonder if on paper they thought this is a really good idea for the last three minutes that we add on. They'll come at each other, all guns blazing, and we'll have a little mini, uh, you know, a great fight on our hands for those last three minutes. What they're forgetting is the guys haven't just fought 27 minutes before that. They've also fought twice before that, one of which was an 18-minute fight. Um, so uh, crazy, crazy, crazy booking, I would call it. Um, especially, especially, with, yeah. uh, well, especially with the addition of judges, uh, it would have made more sense sort of, well, it made more sense this overtime period where fights would head to a draw. And if you don't come out in the uh, in the overtime section and all guns blazing, if you're, you, you need to win that fight to progress in the tournament or you need to win that fight to win the super fight championship, then you are going to come out and all guns blazing in that overtime period. But, now with the judges, Seven had no reason to really allow Taktarov to get anywhere near him, and he just sort of bounced around, as you said, and it made for a really mundane three minutes because both guys were knackered, and Taktarov didn't have anything left in him to launch anything that was going to win him the fight, so Seven just sort of kept the distance and was very comfortable for those three minutes, so it was a complete waste of time. Yeah, absolutely, but I think we all agree that Dan Seven was the, uh, the, the, the most deserving winner of the event. He takes the $150,000 prize money, and uh, our next event, we look forward to UFC 8. Do you want to wrap up the show, Tom? Yeah, well, I was, I was going to say, I, I, I can either do a bit of it, and you can do a bit of it, but I don't know all the, the Twitter handles and the Facebook stuff. So oh, know, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll rattle through them. We'll leave this bit in. Uh, yeah, so let me let me jump in. Uh, firstly, big thank you to Tom Ive for presenting this show. Thanks. It's always a pleasure. Uh, Tom, you can be found on Twitter. I can indeed. It's Mark Out Martin with a Y. And Chris White. Thanks, Bob. No problem. Thanks, Tom. No problem at all. I was going to say, don't, don't thank him. I did all the hard work. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right, yeah. All right, fair it's, enough. It's, it's his show, and thank you to you for presenting. Yeah, well, all right. I'll let you on. <laughs> we'll call Chris the third wheel. Chris, uh, you can be found on Twitter. I am at ChrisWhite14. And a very quick plug for your wrestling podcast. Yeah, if you're interested in out of 20 year ago uh, pro wrestling, you can find Podplex City on Twitter at Podplex City. Uh, we have a podcast. It's weekly. You can find that on iTunes and on SoundCloud. There we go. Very good indeed. Uh, anyway, yes, uh, just to, as we it was slightly awkwardly pivoted. I, I knew when Tom paused, I thought, yeah, he's he, he's waiting for a cue, but I can't bother to this out, so I thought I'd jump in. Um, so yes, you can find us on Twitter at Wrestling20RS. You can find me on Twitter at Bobby Bamba. Uh, Facebook.com forward slash Wrestling20RS. Wrestling20RS.com uh, is where you can find all of the other stuff. Really, we're on iTunes, we're on RSS feeds. There's uh, an email newsletter you can subscribe to and all the rest. Uh, you have got a lot of other things to look forward to this month you haven't got to them already volume one is wcw looking at starcade volume two is the wwf looking in your house five volume three is ecw including the uh, top match with steve austin michael Whitrack and sandman volume five is our end of year award show which we're kind of smashed together about three different recordings uh, covering uh, just a, a review show really reviewing all, all three promotions and volume six yes we are doing six shows this month is our end of year awards show uh, so you're all that to look forward to if you haven't already uh, I've been Bob Bamber he's been Tom Martin he's been Chris White this has been the uh, UFC ultimate ultimate edition of the MMA 20 years ago podcast and until next time goodbye <laughs>